Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory. If you haven't already subscribed, please catch us wherever you love to listen to your podcast, from the Relevant Radio app to Apple, YouTube, you name it, we are there. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to go and give us a five-star review to help other people discover the podcast. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Welcome back to our weekly happy hour here on Trending. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving, a long weekend, lots of good food, and hopefully you have a little bit of leftovers in your fridge. I know we do. My mom sent me home with tons of of delightful leftovers, which I'm going to freeze a little bit. That way we can extend the Thanksgiving delight into uh, the postpartum world. We're expecting baby. I've almost made it to 37 weeks. God is so good after all the preterm labor that we're experiencing before the move and then during some of the move. And, you know, as long as I make it to 37 weeks with a baby girl, but we're still holding out for that due date closer to the 20th. So I would love to hear your predictions. I'm going to have to throw this up on social media. Uh, so stay tuned. I'll put it up there. I want to hear predictions for when you think the baby's going to come, considering preterm labor and everything. Uh, you know, she's in the clear as of tomorrow, um, but I'll, I'll be interested to see the guesses. I'm going for Immaculate Conception uh, December 8th, and I actually have a reason for that. I'll have to share that story sometime this week, so stay with me this week. Uh, lots of exciting news, and we're in our new house. I think I told you we'd be moving in last week. We got in the night before uh, Thanksgiving, and it, we've had so much help from family just through this whole move. It's been incredible. Uh, but, you know, the new house, the whole situation, We, I think I'm dirty. Um, no hot water for a few days now. The, everything got shut off in the transition, and then the water heater stopped working. So, um, yeah, no hot water. I won't tell you how long it's been since I showered. My mom's going to be horrified that I even said that on air right now. My husband took a cold shower, and, you know, for being California, it, a cold shower, you know, it's still pretty cold given how you know cold it is. We're in the 60, 60 is the high this week. And he was, you know, chirping his entire time during that cold shower. I think his hands were numb. And then he had, he actually said he was hot when he got out of the shower. Speaking of which, it is Advent. It's our weekly happy hour. And what better thing to do than to talk about penance during Advent? And cold showers is definitely one of those things you can do. It actually reminds me of Father Tim Grumbach. Father Tim Grumbach is here with me today on Trending. He's a chaplain at Bishop Alamany High School in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. And Father Tim, when we're talking about penance kicking off the Advent season, I remember when you were doing Exodus 90 for the first time that a lot of men do together during um, Lent or before Lent, starting even longer. And I remember you saying that you were getting brain freezes from your daily... Um, uh, freezing showers every day, which just made me laugh so hard. So I was thinking about you last night. Yeah, some memories I tried to forget, right? <laughs> I, I remember I, I've never been colder, though, than surfing early in the morning in the middle of winter here in California and just going under a wave and just getting like an ice cream headache 
while surfing. I'm like, this is not the way it's supposed to work. Uh, but yeah, you know, even that can be united to the cross of Christ in penance, for sure. <laughs> Let's talk about penance a little bit. Here we are in this Advent season. It's I've said it a million times. My producer, Jim, makes fun of me because he's like, I didn't know that Advent was your favorite liturgical season. It is, in case you didn't know. Uh, but here we are in Advent. I remember it wasn't until I was probably almost 20 that I actually understood or started, should I say, to understand what Advent was, that it it is like Lent in some ways, but it is not Lent. There's a reason why we have the purple for the liturgical colors, the simpler decorations in the altar, that penance is a part of this Advent season that we have in preparing ourselves to meet Christ in a multifold way, you know, preparing to meet him in the celebration of his incarnation that we mark at Christmas preparing to meet him at our particular judgment, whenever that might be. And even I always say meeting him in the Eucharist every time we receive him, whether that's daily, a daily mass, or on Sundays, that there's this preparation. We're making a space. We're purging things out of our life to reattach ourselves to God. So one of the ways to do that is through penances. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think that key word is preparation is that there's a lot of language about awaiting the Lord's return and waiting for the Lord to come back. And I can tell you, working with teenagers, especially in the classroom, is that I can just see their eyes glaze over sometimes. And like they're just <laughs> waiting for the, the hour to be over. And I remember that. I was like that in the seminary even at times. Uh, but when I see students really excel, it's they're doing more than just waiting for class to be over, but they're preparing. They are preparing for their exams, for their papers, for... Uh, moving on. And so for us, it's the same here in Advent is that this is less a season of just waiting around for something to happen as preparing our hearts. And so I would say, you know, one of our students was just asking me today, like, what's the difference between Advent and Lent? And like, they know it's different seasons. They know that Lent prepares for Easter and Advent prepares for Christmas, but they wanted to know, like, why are we starting to use more and more this language of penitence and penance during the season of Advent, doesn't that belong in Lent? And I would say, yes, Lent is traditionally, at least in the Western church, more of a penitent season than Advent because we're preparing for the death of Christ on Good Friday. And we are preparing ourselves to look more like Christ on the cross, to conform ourselves to his death so that we might be, uh, we might look more like him in his resurrection, which is his desire for us. But in Advent, you know, the Eastern churches have more of this penitent feel of like a long, uh, a longer Advent with more fasting, more prayer, more penance. And for us, we seem to be getting more of that desire to, for a more penitent season. But it is less a penitent season and more a season of preparation for the coming of Christ. And penance is an amazing way, as long as it's done as a desire to grow in charity, to grow in love that our hearts can be prepared and become even places for the Christ child to find rest as he's born into this world. So I would say that's a key difference between Lent and Advent is the difference between conforming ourselves to the cross of Christ and preparing a place for Christ to be born into our hearts in this season of Advent. And here's, I think, one way to think about it, kind of relating to my state in life, but thinking of Our Lady as well. So I always say that during Advent, we should do, you know, something to really orient ourselves to detaching ourselves from disordered things so that we can attach ourselves to God. So what are maybe those one or two particular things you need to work on to detach from in order to pro form better attachments uh, to Christ? And, you know, you I really encourage people over the last couple of weeks, you know, think about it, pray about this. But I keep coming back to Our Lady, Our Lady who here at the 
incarnation of Christ. Um, she is told by the message of an angel she's going to be the mother of God, you know, asking for her assent. And, you know, there's that attachment to Christ in a whole new way uh, that Our Lady has. Now, we know that she didn't need to detach any further from the world because Our Lady was perfect without stain. But what I keep thinking about is how motherhood plays such an important role in Advent. And, you know, half of us are men, half of us are women, so not all of us are, you know, in the that same perspective, but this is the second baby I'm expecting during the Advent season. And when you become a mom, there's a lot that you should detach yourself from in order to better um, direct yourselves to the proper attachments of responsibilities that you have in your life. And so, you know, there are things that I don't do now that I did before I had a child, not because they were bad things, but just because it made sense for better attachments in terms of the world and detachment so that I could better take care of my child. Well, the same thing with our relationship with Christ, but all the more so here we're expecting the coming of the Christ child. And so how can we attach ourselves to this precious infant, giving ourselves wholly to his care as Our Lady and St. Joseph did, even in the midst of the peril? You know, do we protect Christ within ourselves in the midst of a world that is trying to kill God and say that God doesn't exist? You know, do we, you know, how do we handle that flight to Egypt that the Holy Family goes through? We have to prepare ourselves like a mother and like a father would for the coming of this child into our lives. And that actually in some ways does require a little bit of penance or fasting from different things we otherwise would have had be a part of our daily routine in life. Yeah, I love that you bring up that image of motherhood as essential to the season of Advent. And it calls to mind for me, St. Augustine writing the question of like, Jesus says that we are his brothers and his sisters and his mothers if we follow the will of God. And he says, it's easy to see how we can be brothers and sisters of Christ, but how can all of us be mothers? And he says it is precisely in looking at Mary as the first and best uh, model of discipleship that she would contemplate the face of Christ for those nine months in which he was in the womb. And then to see his face and to be brought to that, for, that perfect joy is that if we seek to follow the will of God as Mary did, we can be in a certain sense, mothers of Christ, bringing Christ into the world. Uh, I was just uh, teaching some of my students today about the using the feminine pronouns of uh, for the church that we refer to she and her and you know acknowledging that yeah that's pretty controversial these days and I could see some chuckles from my students but then being able to offer the beautiful teaching of the church that you know just like Mary received the love of God and nurtured it him within her womb and then bore him out to the world that we are offered the same opportunity. And so beautifully and so simply, I saw this last night, I was at a friend's house and his seven-year-old son came up to me and said, hey, Father Tim, you need to see our manger. And it was just an empty manger sitting in their nativity set. And I said, do you guys have hay for the manger? And, they, and he told me, yeah, every time we do something good or make some kind of sacrifice or, or pray that we get to put a, a piece of hay into the manger so that when Jesus comes on Christmas, he has somewhere comfortable to sleep. And I'm like, oh, this is so much more than just a cute way of decorating the house. This is something that we need to do in all of our hearts. In that motherly way that St. Augustine speaks about is that we can all be mothers of Christ. If we create a manger in our hearts, 
And then we do things not just because we have to or not just because it feels good to do them, but because we're creating a space for Christ to live within us. Like this is at the heart of Advent. And I was just taught this by a seven-year-old. <laughs> and so I, I love the season of Advent in that sense, is that we are creating mangers within our hearts for Christ to come, not just at Christmas, not just at the end of time, but right here and right now, even in the Eucharist. And I keep coming again, like, I love that example of what you gave with the hay in the manger, you know, a little penance, and maybe even for a little child, that's age appropriate of, oh, man, I really want to do this. But if I do it, you know, I'm not going to get to put the hay in the manger. And they understand that that's actually a form of penance for the child, an age appropriate form of penance. And I guess the question for us is, as adults, we're used to, quote, unquote, giving things up or doing things during Lent. But what we're talking about is, what are you going to do this Lent to detach yourself from the world and attach yourself properly to God? Well, penances are great opportunities. So what are some of your favorite penances to incorporate perhaps during the Advent season in particular? Well, I take a lot of inspiration from our Eastern brothers and sisters, like the uh, Byzantine Catholics that I know here in Los Angeles. A lot of them started an Advent fast. Uh, actually, a, a couple weeks ago, I think it was that they started. And so they're, you know, they're going, as far as I'm aware, like without meats and with other, uh, without other animal products. And so they're going through a pretty serious fast uh, leading up to Christmas itself. And so I, I try to tap into that a little bit. And so you know, as simple as maybe no meat, Trying, trying to do no meat until then, and some other ways of fasting. So, you know, and it's, you know, maybe no desserts or no alcohol or something like that. And I, I hear sometimes people denigrate these as like, oh, God doesn't care about your little, you know, giving up chocolate or giving up alcohol. I'm like, well, these are little acts of the will that we make. And every little act of the will of denying ourselves these little good pleasures is something that is shaping our hearts to look more like a manger. And mm-hmm. if, you know, if they're not, then those are things that we should not be doing. If they're making us more bitter, then we need to reconsider our penances. But they can be very simple penances. They don't need to be great things, but they just, they need to be done with love. One of my favorite things to do each Advent, and I haven't done it since I had my daughter, uh, but is to go on a retreat at the beginning of Advent. Oh, it's my favorite time of the year to go on retreat right at the beginning of Advent. If you have that opportunity, it's not too late. There are often many retreats, but a lot of silent retreats. If you've never been on a silent retreat, that's a real penance for some people or a real delight for someone like me. I really did enjoy it. Although the first time I ever went on a silent retreat, I'll never forget it. There was I had never been in you know part of the country where there were tornadoes and there was a huge tornado and a tornado warning and we had to go underground and we were supposed to be quiet. And I remember like going to the restroom at one point and coming back and finding someone in the hallway and like feeling awkward about breaking this out saying, okay, I've never been in a tornado before. What do I do? Like, what do I expect? We're just sitting here, but you know, no one's talking and I've not experienced this before. Uh, but again, coming back, Advent retreats and silent retreats are a great opportunity or even creating your own silent retreat for a day or taking a time of what we would refer to as a desert. I, um, uh, in formation with the religious order of the community of St. John. It's a French religious order. And uh, they have, you know, the patron uh, John, the beloved apostle. And Our Lady is really at the heart of their devotion. But part of the practice is that 
every single week you should take a time of what is known as time of desert, a time where you pull away from the world. Uh, you know, you can look at examples of this, of Jesus Christ pulling away before he kicks off his public ministry, of John the Apostle, you know, taking that time, going out into the wilderness. We read about in Revelation, Our Lady going out into the wilderness. You know, there are a lot of themes of this, and all of it is oriented toward preparation and proper attachment toward God and the mission that we're called to. And the mission that we're called to at Christmas is to go out and proclaim the good news of Christ at Christmas and throughout the rest of the year. Yeah. And I think another practical suggestion for not filling that desert time, but of using that desert time uh, to let our hearts be prepared for Christmas is that you look at the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Luke. And the first two chapters of each of those gospels is the infancy narratives that we find mm-hmm. in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. And so I like to suggest to people, read the two chapters from Matthew one day, read the two chapters from Luke the next day, and then repeat it all the way through Advent. And so for those few weeks, you'll, you'll, every other day you'll be reading a different story of Jesus' uh, uh, inf- birth and infancy. And so you'll know those stories but like the back of your hand by the time Christmas comes along. And then when you go to Mass, you'll be like, I know this story. And you'll realize, hey, I'm, I'm a part of this story. And so that becomes a part of prayer and a part of silence. And considering like Mary, she certainly would have had those times of silence by herself while uh, Jesus was in the womb to just spend that time in adoration and you know, with the hidden God who was in her womb. And that's an opportunity for us to kind of sit in that time of pregnancy and that kind of nurturing the word of God within ourselves before Christmas comes and we can bear it out to the world. Let's run through a couple more ideas for incorporating uh, penances this Advent to prepare yourself for Christ. I'll just throw some things out if you could as well. I mentioned going on a retreat if you can find one, especially a silent retreat. Um, fasting, you mentioned, is a great way, especially Wednesdays and Fridays during the week. Or maybe you go you know, no meat at all or whatever it might be. Or no salt. That would be a really hard one. Um, I try, you know, to incorporate, you know, if I want a little, I love salt. If I want a little more salt in my food, sometimes just little things, especially while I'm pregnant, I can't fast. And so, you know, fasting kind of is a, a life force of penance for me, but between being pregnant and nursing, it's not always possible. Or maybe there's something going on health-wise uh, that you can't do that right now, but you can abstain from maybe some of your favorite foods or desserts. I love it. I always say you should have a reading companion during Advent. Mm-hmm. I'll post some links in the podcast resources. Um, there's everything from Preparation for Death by St. Alphonsus Liguori. There's actually a whole um, meditation, daily meditation book by St. Alphonsus Liguori. It's my favorite. I need to pull it out. It's packed in a box still right now from the move, um, specifically for the Advent season, um, praying your rosary daily, going to daily mass, if those are things you don't do already, or even just reading the readings from the day that are specifically chosen for this Advent season. Father Tim Grumbach here on Trending. Father Tim, what recommendations would you have you know, for quick things to throw in there as penances during Advent? Get to the sacrament of confession. Free your heart up. The Lord wants to give you so much during the Christmas season. And if your heart is weighed down by those sins that you've been carrying with you, let go of them. Uh, Jesus wants to free your heart up so he can find a space in there. We have penance services coming up this week at, at school. And so all of our students are going to get the chance. In a couple weeks, we have like three nights of confessions at the parish that I live at. And I'm going to be helping out at penance services throughout uh, the region. Uh, get to confession. The Lord wants to meet you there. Amen. Amen. That's Father Tim Grumbach. He's a chaplain at Bishop Alamany High School 
in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Father Tim and I are going to come back, continuing on with the Advent theme. Maybe you've incorporated an Advent wreath into your home. I hope you have. If you haven't, it's not too late to pick one up. I'll include a link from Catholic Company. They have a really nice one and tons of candles. We're going to come back talking about that first Advent candle that you see in the church or maybe in your home. It represents hope. Why is hope important during this Advent season? We'll talk about that in just a moment, as well as the Balenciaga ad scandal happening from the Fashion House. We'll talk about that in a second here on Trending. You're listening to Trending with Timry, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. It is truly a miracle. God is so good. Tomorrow I will finally be 37 weeks pregnant. And I say finally because I was really struggling with preterm labor. And now it's like this sigh of relief. Okay, baby can come. You know, it's more ideal that we hit 37 weeks. So anyways, I want to hear your votes as to when you think my baby's coming. I'll be throwing a poll up on social media uh, coming up here. So keep an eye out for that. Follow me at Timmery, T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. But while we're on that note, I was actually thinking about this we're on the show, I'm going to talk about a little bit of extra pregnancy support, some things that have helped me. I would love to hear some of your wisdom. You're just simple supplements, um, progesterone support, helping with you know preventing preterm labor, things such as that. So stay with me. But also, one of my favorite new guests here on Trending is Erica Komasar. She's going to be here tomorrow on Trending. She's a psychoanalyst, a parent coach, and author of two excellent books I highly recommend. We're going to talk about helping your children through anxiety and building resilience. So we'll talk about that tomorrow here on Trending. Joining me now is Father Tim Grumbach. He is the chaplain at Bishop Alamany High School in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. And it's Advent, and it's our weekly happy hour. I love Advent, so we're talking about this season. And one of the things that is important for all of us to be happy, but especially important during Advent, is that Advent wreath. It's one of those things that maybe sparks some joy in your home. You feel like you're doing the Catholic thing in your family, but it actually represents not just the week-to-week candle. Pink's my favorite candle, silly being a girl here, Uh, but the candles represent different things. We all know that Gaudate Sunday, that pink candle represents joy. Uh, But the first candle on that Advent wreath, that first purple candle represents hope. And so, Father Tim, I want to unpack how hope is significant in terms of our happiness, but especially during this Advent season. Yeah, I love the virtue of hope. It's something I've been praying with a lot over the last uh, couple of months as I try to develop a better understanding of it as as a theological virtue. So this is more than just the idea of like rooting for something that you don't think is actually going to happen. Uh, I like to joke with uh, couples that I'm preparing for marriage. And if I'm comfortable enough with them, I can kind of actually mention it in the homily where I'll say it like, I hope this marriage thing works out for you. <laughs> and uh, you get some awkward laughs in the church. Like, did he just say that? Um, and it's to prove a point of like our experience with the word hope as compared to what the church teaches about hope as a theological virtue is that when we hear the word hope, so often it's like, well, I hope this happens, but I don't really think it's going to happen, but I'm going to root for you anyways, you know? (laughs) Um, Like, uh, you know, my mom, my brother and I were huge Michigan Wolverine fans. And so, you know, with the big win over Ohio State this last weekend, sorry to any Buckeye fans out there, (laughs) but maybe not that sorry. Um, But like, I really was hoping that Michigan would win, but I really didn't expect them to win, (laughs) but I was going to root anyways. 
and it turned out the other way and we won. And, and so my hope kind of has more this feeling of like, I knew it, I knew we could do it. And so theological hope is much deeper than this. You know, I don't expect it to happen or to work out, but I'm going to root for it anyways, hope against hope. But theological mm. hope is we, the victory has already been won. And so we're not living to try to get to that victory. We're living from that place of victory that we trust that God wants us in heaven and we're going to live accordingly from that place. And so this hope is something that perfects our memory, our consciousness. And so that's, that's what I find most important when lighting that candle of hope right here at the beginning of Advent is that it's not just we're hoping something happens but don't expect it to, but we expect it to happen and that's where we get our hope from. Mm, isn't that a good reminder? I think for all of us as we're as we're, you know, kind of trying to find that balance of, okay, it's one thing to hope, you know, in a sports team, it's another thing to have this theological understanding of hope that is an absolute gift. I mean, the theological virtue, it's not something you can practice or attain. We can practice natural hope in many ways, but this is the theological virtue that is a pure gift. And it's interesting because I kind of think we live in a culture where when we talk about hope, Father Tim, uh, we tend to think of this naive optimism of kind of this almost like goody two-shoe naive individual who is just optimistic and perky about everything. And if that's what you want me to do, that is just not me, which I really do understand. I think this pessimism, pessimism with regard to hope, because if that's what you think it is, well, it's blind, which people could argue faith is blind. Um, but this naive optimism of hope is not what we're talking about. Um, I keep thinking of the words, I'm forgetting the um, where in St. Paul's letter this comes from, um, but he says, always be prepared to give an account for the hope that is within you. And that hope that St. Paul is talking about is Jesus Christ. I remember I used to have this written up on um, my uh, bulletin board and my mom said, so what's your account for your hope? And it was funny because it startled me when she said that because I'm thinking like I have to prepare something great. Well, it's actually not. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our hope. It's not, an, he is not an object. He's not just some dream. Uh, he is not another human being. Um, he's God, fully God and fully man. And it's not like hope in having a child or not hoping, you know, my spouse changing or anything like that, or a medical treatment, you know, solving problems. Hope is rooted in God alone. And that's the perspective that we have to have. And thank you, Peter. That was from 1 Peter 3.15, not from St. Paul. Yeah. And having uh, St. Peter write it, you know, our first Pope is reminding us like we need hope and it's a gift that's been given to us. And people are going to see that we hope differently than the rest of the world does. And I think St. Paul uses that language also in, uh, in 1 Thessalonians, where he says about those who've died, or he uses the language of those who've fallen asleep, is mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. I, I don't want you to grieve as the rest of the world does who has no hope. And so mm -hmm. our hope is this like anchor, right? It's an anchor that's dragging us into heaven sometimes. And so this hope is, uh, you know, as a theological virtue, it has its end in God, right? It comes from God and it draws us toward God. And one of the things I find most amazing about the reflections of the church and the mystics on hope, it comes from uh, St. John of the Cross, where he says that hope perfects our memory. Now, what does that even mean? Well, his understanding of memory, it's not just this like memory bank or just the things we remember about our past, 
but it's more fully this consciousness. It's how we understand ourselves based on where we've been and what we remember, but also what we are hoping happens in the future. And you know that includes our anxieties, our frustrations, our worries. And he says that the theological virtue of hope, this gift from God that we can't achieve for ourselves, but we have to receive it as a gift, perfects our past, our memories, because we can see where God has been with us this whole time. And then it perfects the anxieties that we may have about our future and our hopes that we have about our future hope with a small h. And it perfects that because we know where we're going, or at least we know where God wants to draw us to. And so because our past can be healed by the virtue of hope, and our future has a solid basis of we know why we're moving forward because of the virtue of hope, then we can live in the future with utmost confidence and say, the Lord has perfected my memory and my expectations with the virtue of hope. And that hope is not just an idea. It's not just a consequence of something that we've done. But that hope is God himself who is drawing us to himself. And that's the way that we begin Advent with this candle, this expectation that God is drawing us through the season of Advent to himself. Let's talk a little bit more about what hope is. I remember reading a book by incredible philosopher, Joseph Pieper, and he wrote this book on faith, hope, and charity. And he talks about natural faith, hope, and charity and theological faith, hope, and charity. But when he's talking about natural uh, hope, you know, something that we can kind of work on, he talks about how hope... and always love this. I'll never forget it. He talks about how hope is kind of that means that we talk about in philosophy between two extremes um, and, you know, where the virtue is, the virtue is in the middle. So he talks about the means of being um, magnanimity and humility and that hope is that balance between magnanimity and humility. And magnanimity isn't something we really uh, talk about very often, but it's this idea of like attaining or aspiring to great things, to not just do great things, but to actually be worthy of doing those great things that we try to seek out and do. And so it's kind of that whole idea of work as if everything depends on you and strive for greatness, but then at the same time, uh, pray and know that everything at the end depends on God. And so that balance would be humility of total submission and dependence on God. And that hope is kind of that balance in between where you're not just, um, you're, you're seeing, okay, I need to aspire, but I need to depend. And that is what makes up the culmination of hope. Because the virtues are found in the mean between two extremes. Uh, and you could say the same, a similar thing about hope as you can about courage is that it, it does lie in between this mean of uh, recklessness of like, I don't care. I'm just going to go do whatever I want. And the other extreme of cowardice of I'm too afraid to go do anything. And so hope is actually, then you could say is would be the courage for that or the, the basis for that courage. That is the virtue that lies in the mean between those two extremes. And so hope uh, informs courage the only reason we can have courage to avoid a recklessness that would put, a, put ourselves in needless trouble and a cowardice that would make us afraid of everything, uh, hope gives us the courage that we need as a virtue that will you know, find that, that perfect balance in between you know, uh, being afraid to go to any battle or, going, or taking on every battle, even the ones that God is not asking us to take on. Isn't that that balance, that humility, those battles that God is not asking us to take on? And that's tough to swallow. 
But that's also what gives us, I think, peace and hope and joy when we can let go of those things that we're trying to make so desperately about what we have to achieve or, you know, what's us. I keep thinking even of just this whole experience I recently shared. We just moved back to California over the last couple of weeks and months. And you know, I had this hope. I had this dream. I wanted to be back and I wanted to be back before the birth of my child. And God really delivered, you know, just a few weeks early. Um, but you know, what are we placing our hope in? And is it reasonable? And can we trust that even if that doesn't happen, you know, even if it doesn't, or whatever might happen in life, that we can still understand and submit ourselves to the will of God, allowing him uh, to place us right where we're at in the midst of the trials that he has allowed. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that's so key is it's an obedience to the events that the Lord allows to happen in our lives is that there are certainly th- certainly things that God does not want to happen in our lives, right? He doesn't want us to sin. Uh, and so there are things that God permits without, uh, without willing perfectly. And so if we allow that kind of uh, obedience to those events, and that really comes from that place of hope. Again, looking at our past and knowing that's where the Lord has allowed me to be and he has drawn me out of it. And looking to whatever our anxieties in the future might be and saying, you know what, I'm going to give those to the Lord before they even happen and say, you know, Lord, I praise you before I see the miracles that you're going to work. I praise you before I see the healing that you're going to work because of that gift of hope that the Lord has poured into our hearts. Right. And that's what St. Paul says in the letter to the Romans is that, you know, the, the love of God has been poured into our hearts, that hope we are saved by hope because the love of God has been poured into our hearts. I love that reminder with hope. And it's our weekly happy hour, so I love to kind of tie this back into that theme of happiness. But again, we talk about happiness, but what we're really seeking is joy. And joy is a virtue. It's rooted in God. It's oriented and directed toward God. And it's grace. It's pure grace uh, in our lives. In the midst of the challenges, in the midst of the moments where we'd like to despair, we don't despair because we have the hope of Christ within us. Yeah. And again, and it's not just a a thing that God has given to us. It is himself. You know, another key thing that I've been teaching my students uh, today was, you know, we're going through De Verbum and the word of God uh, as handed down to us uh, in the teaching of the Second Vatican Council, teaching us that God, you know, the why of God's revelation, the why of the word of God is that is self-communication, is that God desires to give us himself and to make us a part of his family so that we might look like him. You know, I was just with my, uh, my brothers this week for Thanksgiving. And my mom was like, I need a picture of my boys. And so we all st- stood up in, in a line in front of the Christmas tree. And, and I was like posting it on my social media. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, we see the resemblance. right?" <laughs> and so uh, we look like each other because we're part of the same family. And uh, that's what God desires for us. And giving us the, the virtue of hope is part of how he makes us look like himself. And so that's key to understanding the theological virtues is that uh, faith perfects our intelligence and our understanding, Uh, hope perfects our memory, our consciousness, and then charity and love perfects our will, how we make decisions, why we make decisions, whom we choose to love, whom we choose not to love, that uh, the, the theological virtues are meant to perfect us, to not just draw us to God as if he's somewhere else, but to begin to make us look like God here in this world so we can begin to experience the love of heaven well before we die. Mm, Can you repeat that one more time? So hope perfects memory. And then what does faith faith perfect? And our understanding. And then charity perfects our will. 
and you know the choices that we make. It's a it's a, a beautiful thing that um, Saint John of the Cross writes extensively on uh, Teresa of Avila as well. Just really the mystics, and it's really very much a, a scholastical understanding of the theological virtues as being more than just uh, you know uh, something that like gifts that God gives to us, but uh, which they are, but how they transform us at the deepest levels of our humanity, because our our humanity. It takes the image of God because we have an intellect, like the angels do, but we also have a a will which allows us to love. You know, you can't love without free will, and we have a memory which is something is again. It's it's not just the memories we have in our mind, but it's how we understand ourselves based on our past and by our hopes and expectations of the future. And so, every one of the theological virtues is meant to perfect something about what makes us perfectly human. Mm, I love that. That's Father Tim Grumbach here on Trending with Tim, where you can follow him on social media. I'll tag him on Instagram as well as on Twitter. And if you didn't catch the full episode, we're talking about Advent. We're here in the thick of it. Stay with us every day of Advent here on Trending because we will dive deep into our faith, the richness of this Advent season as we prepare ourselves for the coming of Christ at Christmas, but also to receive him in the Eucharist when we go to Mass as well as at the time when that comes for us to die. It's a good time to ponder our death and keep death in front of us because it leads to Christ, depending on how we live here on earth. I'll be right back. Probably one of my favorite Advent songs we've been talking about. Holding off just a little bit on diving totally into the Christmas music. I try to stick to instrumentals or more so the secular Christmas music before Christmas Christmas. Because it's more anticipation. Uh, But we have so many traditional Advent hymns. And Come Divine Messiah is one of them. And thank you to Jim Jim Shaper here uh, behind the scenes on Trending. Because I just told him I want to hear Come Divine Messiah today. And that is a gorgeous version. I've never heard it before. We're going to actually have to grab the link to that and post it in the episode notes as well as on social media because that was absolutely beautiful. And if you're trying to create a playlist of Advent music, which I know is something I've tried to do as well so that I can really kind of prepare myself again in the season of Advent, the season of preparation, that is one way to do so. And looking even at the uh, words of the hymns for Advent, really do, it's another way to help prepare yourself for the coming of Christ. A lot of it dives into Old Testament scripture uh, that helps us to understand what that anticipation was at the time of the coming and the birth of Christ and better understand how significant the coming of the Messiah is for the human race. It is such an important thing 
for us to understand. It's our weekly happy hour today on trending and a little more serious of a topic, but I thought was important to discuss, especially with last week being Thanksgiving. We didn't really have the opportunity to dive into it. You may have followed some of the Balenciaga ad scandal. Balenciaga is the fashion house uh, that some people know more commonly uh, because of Kim Kardashian and other people such as Nicole Kidman. Um, Kim Kardashian's come under a lot of uh, fire and attention with everything that's happened over the last week with Balenciaga. Uh, Why is this important? Um, I want to talk about it during our happy hour because bad laws don't make us happy. Bad laws aren't good for us as human beings. Bad Supreme Court decisions and so forth. And all of this comes back in many ways to what is legal in the United States and what businesses are practicing and what individuals are okay with. So here's what happened. And whether you want to call these teddy bear bags punk or bondage, it's pretty darn clear that this is inappropriate for any ad. I I was actually watching an interview from The View from this morning and they wouldn't even fully describe the ads or post a photo of it. And it's The View. It's The View. I mean, they wouldn't even, because they recognize how inappropriate this was. Uh, And thank God for people who sounded the whistle on this entire, this entire uh, ad campaign. So Balenciaga released a, seasonal ad campaign uh, and they are showcasing um, a purse that's shaped like a teddy bear in bondage gear. It's very clear this is bondage. This is not punk, okay? If you want to claim it's punk, go ahead and try to, but there are two different images. One is an image of a little girl, probably age about five to seven, standing on a couch. And another is a little girl, age five to seven, standing on a bed. And in front of her on the bed are all of these items, including things such as cups for alcohol, chains. Um, The back of the wall has little black dragons. It's very, very dark and gruesome. And So Balenciaga came under extreme scrutiny, justifiably so, because these ads are inappropriate. No child, no minor, especially a five to seven-year-old child, should be in any advertisement having to do with masochistic bondage type of items. And I do just think it's interesting from a Catholic perspective to also recognize how dark these images were. The little girl's on a bed and behind her is a white wall with little black dragons. And if you think about it, historically, dragons have always represented Satan, right? (laughs) I mean, so this is clearly not just something that is inappropriate in terms of the sexualization of a child, but it also is very clearly satanic. And so as we're looking at this ad campaign, um, it continued to blow up over the last week. Now, Balenciaga on Tuesday did release a statement and saying, you know, we are completely responsible for anything that is produced by us. However, at the same time, they come out saying, you know, we didn't know. And, you know, some of the stuff was snuck into the ad itself and yada, 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 yada. Here's the bottom line. Balenciaga is a massive international fashion house. Working with people such as Kim Kardashian, Nicole Kidman, and many others. The Balenciaga staff, it's come out very clearly, the Balenciaga staff was there at the photo shoot. 
and that they approved the ads. I mean, come on, they are a massive fashion house. Of course, tons of eyes were on these ads and they chose, they decided that this was something they were okay with putting up. I mean, there are final after final after final drafts of advertisements before they're finally released. So everyone who saw this is culpable. There's no way that someone didn't see what was in this ad. And it includes children. Now, here's where the whole thing, I think, thickens, where the plot kind of takes another twist. Well, another one of their ads that's coming out in 2023, I don't think it's come out yet. In the advertisement, if you look in the background of the advertisement, their photos online, there's actually a copy, a print paper copy of the Supreme Court of the United States ruling of the United States versus Williams, which is a Supreme Court case that was decided upon in 2008. And what that Supreme Court case talked about was the criminalization and possession and distribution of child pornography. Now, to be very, very clear, to possess or distribute child pornography is illegal. And this is something we'd ha- we've had to be very clear with because a lot of teenagers, a lot of kids today are sending images of themselves to others, both other minors and other adults. That's illegal. This is actually something you should talk to your children about. If your teenage daughter or teenage son has pornographic images of other people on their phone who are minors, they can be held responsible under the law. I can tell you, for example, uh, in the state of Georgia, and this isn't just Georgia, this is all over the country, but I have a friend working with this issue in Georgia, the uh, criminal system, the legal system, the courts have so many cases of minors who are not just in possession of, but who are distributing pornography of minors child pornography, pornography of themselves and friends, that the justice system doesn't know what to do because there are so many minors that have and are distributing child pornography. So talk to your child. Help them to understand what they are doing is illegal. It can literally ruin their life. Now, bring it back to the Balenciaga Balenciaga situation with the fashion house having this in their ads. So here in in one of the ads, what the connection is, is one, they have an advertisement that they release at the holiday season. It's disgusting with five to seven year old on a bed with masochistic bondage type teddy bear and items in front of them, including uh, things that would be used for alcohol and chains. And then another ad at the same time that's coming out in 2023 uh, that was seen also has a Supreme Court ruling of United States versus Williams on paper in the background that talks about the criminalization, possession, distribution of child pornography. What's the connection? The connection is, is that clearly people who work at Balenciaga are making a point about their position on the fact that they're okay with sexualizing children. Here, how do we know this? Well, here's something interesting that happened. Balenciaga, for example, has removed all of their content from Instagram and other platforms. Every single image from Instagram, the only thing that you can find on Balenciaga's Instagram. And how many people is follow Balenciaga on Instagram. I'm curious. I'm looking this up right now because I do think that this is relevant. Let's see. I'm opening it up right now. Okay. 14.3 million people follow Balenciaga. 
open it up. The only thing, only image there is a statement about what happened. Why did they wipe all their content from their social media? I'll tell you exactly why. Because Balenciaga has been hand in hand with the systemic sexualization of children internally and probably externally as well. This is child abuse. This is exploitation. We live at a time where secrecy is being encouraged by adults toward children behind the backs of their parents. We have this Freudian idea that people, human beings, and even today the idea that children are oppressed with old-fashioned ideas such as the Catholic worldview of the gift of sexual intimacy, of the gift of human life, the innocence of children, the beauty of virginity. In the name of autonomy, independence, and freedom with regard to what you do with your body, that's what they're fighting for. But this is a battle for hearts, for minds, and at the end of the day, for souls. We're talking about the souls of young children. That's why children need to understand to have an image of someone else who's a minor on their devices printed that's illegal. Why do they need to understand that law? They need to understand that law because it's also important that they understand from a wholesome spiritual perspective, the gift of virginity, the gift of chastity. Don't wait to talk to your kids about this. Don't let the ways of the world and places such as Balenciaga's Fashion House and others, social media influencers say that it's okay to do whatever you want with your body. When the reality is, is that that will not make us happy. And we need to fight for not just innocence and purity, but for truth and joy in our lives and the path, the blueprint for our lives that take us there. This is Tim Ray from Trending with Tim Ray. Tuesday, Erica Komazar is joining me. She's a psychoanalyst, a parent, coach, and an author. We're going to talk about helping your children through anxiety and building resilience. Also, baby number two is going to be here soon. I'm so excited. I want to hear your guesses as to when she's going to be born. We're going to talk a little bit about extra support during pregnancy, preterm labor, and some of those fun and not so fun things. And I want to share some wisdom. So join me Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.